Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us, letting us be part of your day. We hope you're having a good one. On our program today, here's what we're going to be talking about. National Grilling Day is coming up. Yeah, that's right. Do some cooking out on the grill. We're going to tell you how you can participate in this virtual event. We'll be talking with the Vice President of Domestic Marketing for the National Pork Board. Also going to be talking today about the ag economy and the impact of COVID-19 and some thoughts on the uh, recent big ag purchases by China. We'll talk with John Newton, Chief Economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation. And we're going to talk about the new dietary guidelines and how dairy fits in. We'll talk with the Senior Vice President of Environmental and Regulatory Affairs for the National Milk Producers Federation, what they liked and what they still have some concerns about when it comes to those dietary guidelines. That's a little bit later on in the program. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Glad you're with us. Let's start things off with Kurt Blade, Senior Vice President, Ag Services for the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Each month we check in with Kurt to get the latest ag equipment sales numbers. They are a good barometer, reflection of what's going on in the uh, ag economy in particular, general economy overall. Kurt, thanks for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing well, although I'm standing between you and talking about grilling, so I kind of think I should hang <laughs> on and wait for, the, wait for that conversation. Sounds more interesting. Yeah, you might pick up a few grilling tips, you know, if you uh, stay with us. Uh, well, meanwhile, let's take a look at the numbers. What are the latest uh, sales numbers? Well, the the June numbers of tractors and combine just just came in, and I tell you, we were we were pretty surprised that uh, across the board we saw a pretty nice improvement uh, compared to where we were this time this time last year in June, and actually beginning to dig us out of uh, out of a deficit that we were seeing year to date uh, across the board. As you look at some of the specific areas, uh, like under 40 horsepower tractors that we've been talking about for a long time, and those are just on fire. Uh, we saw about a 37% increase uh, of sales of under 40 horsepower tractors in 2020 versus uh, versus 2019. So we a lot of people that have acreages that are uh, maybe quarantined at home, making some home improvement, making some land improvement. But I tell you, another nice bright spot has been, you know, farm tractors. Uh, whether it's uh, 40 to 100 plus, uh, 40 to 100 horsepower tractors, or even 100 plus horsepower tractors, also, you know, kind of saw some nice increases for the month of June. Wow, pleasant surprise. So you think part of that are landowners that are, you know, kind of homebound, so they're doing more work around the around the homestead. Yeah, that's that's uh, the, the the logical answer. I mean, as you look, you know, throughout the economy, some markets have actually done quite well during during you know time of the pandemic, and a lot of things that have to do with home improvement uh, and folks that are you know able to make their their nest a little bit more comfortable since they're spending time at home. And under full under forty horsepower tractors certainly fall into that category as well. And that's been a phenomenon that we've been seeing, you know, really since since uh, April hearing from manufacturers that they were just, you know, really happy with the sales of the under 40 horsepower tractors. And, uh, but what was happening at the same time is we were seeing a pretty, not, not steep decline, but we we're seeing some real softness in the row crop tractors. Now that we're seeing those start to bounce back a little bit in June. That's, that's good news. That's, that's news that, uh, 
I think farmers are are sort of uh, recognizing that you know this too will pass. Now, granted, these were June numbers and kind of before the latest let it, uh, you know amount of headlines, but I think everybody kind of says this too will pass, and farmers are in business for the long haul. So at some point, we kind of got to get on with uh, get on with farming, and sometimes that means updating your equipment or buying some new tractors and combines. You touched on it, but let's talk a little bit more about which categories are still the slowest to to show improvement. Yeah, the, the, the real soft one with this June report is the uh, articulated four-wheel drive tractors. Um, you know, those are still showing some softness. Uh, year-to-date, we're down about 11% year-to-date on those articulated four-wheel drive tractors. But you also got to recognize that, you know, being down that percentage is still about 150 units. So there's not as many of those units sold. But that's a, you know you also got to recognize that's a pretty expensive purchase. That's a considered purchase for someone, and that market also includes you know a lot of construction. And I think our construction markets are seeing a little bit more softness than the ag markets. Another interesting point on this June report is combines, uh, self-propelled combines, seeing a nice little bump in the month of June, mm-hmm. getting this almost flat to last year on self-propelled combines. And if you recall the conversation we were having about this time last year, self-propelled combines were pretty pretty nice. So seeing that market uh, remain solid is, is, is a good indication that you know farmers are farmers are comfortable with the new technology, farmers are comfortable making making some investments and recognizing that, you know, we still gotta still gotta feed the world, still gotta fuel the world, still gotta you know clothe the world. So that's why they're making those investments. So some positives in the, the latest numbers. Uh, what about later as this summer and fall rolls on here, Kurt, and we don't have a lot of the events like some state fairs and other outdoor farm shows, usually a place for farmers to take a look at the new equipment, new technology. Without those, what impact do you think that might have? Well, it's, it's bound to have an impact. I mean, it's... it's uh, you know, it's pretty pretty fun to go to a state fair or to go to a local farm show and kick the tires of some of the new technology and speak with the experts. But I will say that I'm you know I'm hearing lots of you know interesting, innovative ways that our our uh, our manufacturer members and even dealers are are really you know putting some of that technology in the hands of of, of farmers to give them a chance to look at it. It's not quite the same as you know with a big display at a trade show, but, but, you know, maybe there's some virtual options and some other ways that they're getting that technology in front of folks. And in some cases able to get that technology in front of more people because it is digital. So it's, it's a really interesting time. And we're going to see how that plays out, whether that affects sales or not long-term is, is yet to be determined. But I do know it's top of mind for our members because, you know, we, we, we welcome that opportunity to talk with farmers and share, share that technology we've been working on. And uh, if we can't do it face-to-face, we've got to figure out some ways to get it in front of uh, folks so they can understand the benefits of that technology that's coming out here. It is interesting to see how various sectors of the ag industry are adapting to COVID-19, the changes, and finding ways to work around and, and coming up with new ways to connect with customers. You bet. In fact, I think... You know, Mike, I think we'll, we, we can very well look back on this and say, you know, there's a lot of negatives that are coming out of, out of this pandemic. Don't get me wrong. But there's also some interesting positives. And one of those could be, you know, r- rural America uh, is, is obviously facing, has faced a labor shortage for a long time. It's, it's 
you know, we've had trouble getting good technicians at local dealerships in some of those areas. And what we recognize is that out of necessity, these tools that have been available uh, to farmers a long time but haven't necessarily been adopted, are, we're finding that they're getting adopted out of, out of necessity, maybe giving people access to some better, uh, better support than they've had before, which is a pretty good thing. And we'll see how that carries over post-COVID-19. Kurt, thanks a lot. Good to talk with you. Thanks, Mike. Talk soon. Kurt Blade, Senior Vice President, Ag Services for the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Up next, we'll talk about National Grilling Day. Stay with us on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, next Wednesday, July 22nd, is National Grilling Day, and the National Pork Board will be hosting an all-day grill-a-thon. And here to tell us about it is Angie Krieger, Vice President, Domestic Marketing for the National Pork Board. Angie, thank you for being with us in this w- world in which we live now, where so many things are having to be done virtually. How do we have a virtual grill-a-thon? Yeah, good morning, Mike. Thanks for having us on. I'm I'm really excited to talk about National Grilling Day. So um, we are hosting an all-day event on our Facebook page. So Facebook, right, is a great way for us to uh, post live content, engage with consumers in a really real-time fashion, but do it in a very socially responsible way. So we already have a couple thousand people who have RSVP'd to the all-day event, which, as you said, will happen uh, July 22nd, and I'm just really excited for it. Well, give us some details on how people can participate. Yep, absolutely. So our uh, National Pork Board Facebook page, so at National Pork Board, um, which folks should follow anyway, um, always have great content, great recipes on there. But if you go to the Facebook page, there is a there's an event that's been created. You RSVP for the event and then just tune in on the 22nd. Um, so we'll have live content from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Central. We're going to start with um, some brunch ideas on the grill. So an literally all-day event, um, brunch, lunch, appetizers, and then um, closing off with our new retail or registered dietitian, Kara Belke, who just joined us um, a, month, a month or so ago in the midst of all this COVID craziness. And she's going to be grilling from our courtyard right here at the National Port Board headquarters. So a chance to pick up some grilling tips. Yes. So we're going to really take folks on a virtual tour around the world, if you will. The wonderful thing about pork on the grill is the variety of flavors and recipes that can be cooked. So um, the versatility of pork is just unbelievable. And whether you like chops or tenderloins or, you know, something more indulgent like ribs or bellies or shoulders, uh, we've got it all from a flavor standpoint. And pork pairs beautifully with a lot of flavor profiles. So uh, consumers are, you know, they're hungry for flavors. And in fact, our grilling campaign is called Chasing Summer's Flavors. We know that in the midst of COVID, that about 70% of consumers are still cooking 90% of their meals at home. So that's great news for pork, great news for retail sales. But we don't want consumers to get bored with what they're eating. So all of the different uh, cuisines, think 
think from everything from Asian to Latin to Italian, um, and folks can pair those flavors with pork on the grill. We're talking with Angie Krieger, Vice President, Domestic Marketing for the National Pork Board, talking about the big day coming up next Wednesday, National Grilling Day, and the virtual grill-a-thon that the National Pork Board is having. Angie, I can't help but think uh, a lot of people probably miss out on the great taste of pork on the grill, maybe because they're concerned about they'll undercook it or and they wind up overcooking it and maybe they're they're hesitant to even try so this is a chance for them to learn more about grilling pork yes absolutely we'll have lots of tricks and tips um everything from our our board president uh dr david newman who's a meat scientist He's going to talk a lot about, you know, the science of pork and cooking pork um, to, you know, trained chefs who are going to throw in the flavor profiles. But, you know, the important, the most important thing to remember about cooking pork today is it's very lean. So that's great news from a healthy diet standpoint. Uh, but it's really most important not to overcook those lean cuts like loins and tenderloins. And so, I, what we recommend is that folks get a meat thermometer, and it can be everything from the most basic thermometer to something really high-tech that is a virtual set-it-and-forget-it now, right? You can put it in your grill and go in the house, and uh, your phone will go off when it reaches the right temperature. But that magic temperature for those loin cuts especially is 145 degrees. You pull it off at 145 and let it rest for three minutes, and it is absolutely delicious. Another part of this, of course, and a big part of uh, cooking indoors or out is is food safety, and you'll be touching on that as well. Yes, yep. So, again, the whole idea of, you know, making sure you're not cross-contaminating your foods on the grill. I know our family, we love to use our grill almost entirely during the summer. So think about having an, a no-oven summer. It's certainly been hot here in central Iowa the past several weeks, and the last thing you want to do is fire up the oven. So um, thinking about, you know, pairing your pork with vegetables or potatoes on the grill and just being really careful about keeping those foods separate. But then again, you know, managing cooking temperature and the best way to do that is with a thermometer. I would imagine you'll get quite a variety of tips and recipes and all kinds of uh, good information uh, uh, during this grill-a-thon next week. Yes. Yeah, we're just going to celebrate pork all day. And what's better than that, right? Um, so again, thinking about uh, starting in the morning with brunch, I mean, folks could cook along with us all day. And uh, I think that there's nothing that sounds better than that, get outside with the grill. Um, you know, the beauty, though, is we know folks won't be able to tune in all day. And this content will be live uh, for for eternity. So an, another um, wonderful thing about uh Social media and uh, Facebook is that we'll have content on there after the day, but we really love for people to tune in. We're going to have some special treats um, for those who are tuned in live. And again, tell us about how they get on there so they can participate in the Grillathon. Yep, absolutely. So it's the National Pork Board Facebook page. So at National Pork Board, uh, there is an event created for July 22nd. It starts at 10 a.m. Central Time. We'll go all the way through to 5 p.m. Just RSVP and uh, the Facebook app will send you a reminder so you don't forget. But folks can just tune in um, throughout the day and, and catch our, our chefs and dietitians and special guests. So whether you're 
a veteran, an experienced griller, or maybe a kind of a novice, a beginner, there should be something for everyone here. Absolutely, yes, there will be something for everyone. Um, you know, we love working with, with chefs. Um, they they create some amazing uh, flavors on the grill, but we have a couple staff members who are super talented on the grill as well, and we're going to highlight uh, highlight them as well. The important thing to note is anybody can grill. Um, I will tell you, I love to grill. I'm I my kids would tell you I'm not a great cook. Um, I love to cook, but I I love to grill, and I've mastered it. So um, anybody can do it if I can. And you know. And I'm guilty of this. I, I get comfortable and set in my ways with my favorites that I'm comfortable with preparing, and I go to those most often. And don't always, I'm not always uh, willing to try something new because I'm afraid I won't do a very good job at it. Well, here's a chance to kind of learn, uh, so you can try some of those uh, different uh, different uh, pork cuts out on the grill. Yeah, I think people sometimes, you know, it is it's scary to try something new and especially you're investing in a piece of meat um, when you're thinking about you know a rack of ribs or a or a smoked shoulder it's a you know it's a big cut of meat but there's you can absolutely be successful and the the beauty of you know doing something like a pork butt is you can have planned overs right so when I was growing up my mom called them leftovers that didn't sound that attractive but the idea of planned overs in today's economy, um, smoking a pork butt and being able to have meals for your family for two or three days by infusing different flavors uh, with the toppings that you use or having a handheld a sandwich one day and using it as a, a topping for tacos the next day, that's, that's really exciting and really um, appetizing um, in, in many ways for consumers. A lot of people look forward to whether it's a fair or some kind of fall festival or summer event outdoors that may be canceled this year. Those events were a lot of times they would get the, you know, that pork chop sandwich or something like that. And oftentimes they'd say, boy, I wish I could get mine at home to taste like that. Well, here's a chance to learn how. Absolutely. Yeah, I know. Everyone will definitely miss the pork chop on a stick at the Iowa State Fair this year. They can learn how to do that at home. Um, the other you know, favorite, I think, at fairs across Iowa, especially is pork burgers. And man, ground pork is hot right now at retail. Um, week over week, sales are up. So uh, people are, are are discovering the wonderful flavor that ground pork has. And uh, a pork burger on the grill is very reminiscent of a county or state fair in Iowa. So next Wednesday, National Grilling Day, tell us again how to participate in the Grillathon. Go to where? Yep, at National Pork Board on, the, on Facebook, our Facebook page. And please RSVP. We encourage producers uh, to share that link with their family and friends. We would love to have tens of thousands of people participating. That's the, the beauty of a Facebook event. All right, Angie Krieger, Vice President, Domestic Marketing for the National Pork Board. Thanks, Angie. You're listening to AOA. Yep. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, let's take a look at the ag economy with the chief economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation, John Newton. John, good to talk with you again. Big news recently, some big purchases of ag products by China. Why haven't we seen more market reaction to that, you think? I think one of the reasons 
why. I mean, it's it's new crop purchases. Uh, but but the key thing is is we got to wait for those commitments to buy to turn into inspections. And I think that's what the market's going to be waiting on. Uh, they they have been in the market in a very big way for new crop, uh, both new crop corn uh, and soybeans. But again, I think I think folks in the trade want to see that number go from a commitment to an inspection, and that'll happen later this year. Meanwhile, there's uh, you know the the talk. The, the narrative is not real positive between the U.S. and China. The president saying he doesn't feel like talking about a phase two of the trade deal now. Does that kind of put a damper on things? Well, I, I think you have to look at everything that's been accomplished so far uh, under phase one. I mean, a lot of the ag-related provisions were, were in the phase one portion of this trade deal. When you think about all the plants that have now been approved for, for export to China, uh, what they've done to, to study things like ractopamine. Uh, and, and while they're, they're currently behind on their purchase commitments, they are uh, you know, making commitments to buy more agricultural products. So I think while they, they've said they've tabled a, a phase two discussion, a lot of the, the items that we're happy about in ag are, are in that phase one package. It would really be a boost if they would purchase ethanol or ethanol products like DDGs, wouldn't it? Well, it, it certainly would. I think the challenge with, with DDGs, Mike, is we don't have a whole lot to sell right now. When you think about these ethanol plants that, that idled capacity, uh, you know, at one point in time, ethanol production uh, in, in mid, mid to late April was down more than 40%. So that really put a, a strain on our DDG supplies. But uh, at the end of the day, yeah, exporting ethanol is going to be huge for the phase one. Obviously, our protein products, our pork and poultry, uh, have been doing very well in the Chinese market, but uh, they're going to need to step up their purchases of corn, of soybeans, of wheat, uh, of dairy products, just about everything to meet that phase one commitment. We have seen some rebound for the ethanol industry, although now the concerns with the uh, recent spikes in the uh, positive cases of COVID uh, bring into question, you know, how f- much the rebound is going to, how far it's going to go here right away. But uh, we have seen some improvement. Uh, we, we have seen some improvement. I was just looking at, at new crop ethanol futures, and, and you know, as recently as last week, they were higher than where they were when uh, the World Health Organization declared the pandemic. But today, uh, we did see ethanol futures drop uh, in recent days, again, on the back of, of states potentially uh, reversing or, or moving back on their uh, reopening plans. We're talking with John Newton, Chief Economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation. John, as we wait to see what the Senate does here in the next couple of weeks as far as another COVID assistance uh, package and especially how uh, it would pertain to agriculture, ag groups are certainly making their cases of the of the harm that they have seen to their industries, to their segment of the ag economy during COVID-19. Uh, do we have a real handle on on the impact of the pandemic so far on agriculture? I mean, the numbers have to be staggering. Well, what, what, one thing that, that we've been looking at is just USDA's estimate estimated change in the value of commodity production. When you think about uh, the impact on the broiler sector, on the beef sector, on the dairy sector, corn, soybeans, cotton, you add it all up, we're at over $40 billion dollars and just the change in commodity value. Then you add in the specialty crops uh, that have been damaged by coronavirus, your nursery, your horticulture, uh, your aquaculture. Uh, it's, it's very, very significant, and that's why we've been working, trying to get the CCC Borrowing Authority 
uh, updated uh, for for inflation. Uh, we're at sixty eight billion is where we'd like to see it. There has been talk of the need to go to some kind of a set aside program and reduce production. We've been down that road before. Do you think uh, that discussion will heat up in the days to come? Do you think there's much uh, support for that? Well, there, there was, you know, in the HEROES Act, uh, uh, a package, uh, the, the Soil Health and Income uh, Protection Program ship. Uh, we had that in the 08 Farm Bill that, that set aside 50,000 acres for uh, cover crop programs, and it was expanded uh, in the HEROES Act by a thousand percent, up to five million acres, uh, with advanced payments. Uh, growers planting a cover crop get as much as uh, three hundred dollars an acre up front under the the SHIP Act, as proposed in the House. Uh, we think that there may be uh, some version of that on the Senate side, uh, but but at the end of the day, you know, we know that set aside programs don't work because you take an acre uh, out of the United States, it's going to pop up in South America, it's going to pop up in Eastern Europe, the Black Sea region. Uh, and when you look at this particular SHIP program, it's it's pretty lucrative. So we've got some ideas on how uh, that can be modified so that we're not distorting market signals. We're not making, uh, you know, a, a subset of growers, giving them a competitive advantage over others. So uh, we're still looking at those SHIP provisions, but uh, you're exactly right. There's more and more discussions on a set-aside, but at the end of the day, it, it makes us less competitive. We give those acres up. We're never going to get back. A lot in the, the HEROES Act for agriculture. Now we wait to see how much of that will be in the, the Senate bill when they get it put together, expected to be here in the next uh, couple weeks or so. Um, so there's a lot at stake for agriculture, but there have also been concerns raised that uh, agriculture is becoming even more dependent than ever on these uh, government payments. And uh, how do you get off of that, or how do you deal with when those come to an end? Well, you know, you think back in the last three years, you know, we didn't ask to, to get retaliatory tariffs put on us uh, at a time when the, the crop's still in the ground. So you, you've got to help folks. Uh, we saw, you know, the, the trade assistance dollars both in 17 and 18 uh, didn't make folks whole, but it, it helped bridge the gap. And, and you know, we came into 2020 excited about the opportunity for potentially higher farm income. Uh, but who could have anticipated uh, you know, the impact of the coronavirus, the impact on global economies, the impact on trade. Uh, you know, every sector of the U.S. economy has received uh, some sort of assistance, whether it's small businesses or agriculture. I mean, I think you had to do that. Uh, but going forward, you know, folks want to plant for the market. They want to earn their money uh, out of the market. We just need to get back to normal marketing conditions. Yeah, the need has been there for the assistance. The challenge is going to be shifting back to that market-oriented system, as you said, when you're dealing with a worldwide pandemic, that makes it even tougher if, when you're relying on those export markets. It, it certainly does. I think when, when you're thinking about uh, not only have we seen you know economic challenges here at home, we've seen economic challenges uh, in many of our largest trading partners, and, and that does make it difficult uh, to, to export our products. When, when people don't have money overseas, uh, they're not going to buy the expensive cuts of meat. They're not going to buy the expensive dairy products. So uh, there are some challenges, but I think, uh, you know, many countries around the world uh, outside of, you know, here at home have start, you know, turned the corner. Uh, we've got we've to do our part to, to make sure it, it stays that way. 
uh, in terms of uh, reducing the COVID-19 so that we can get back to a healthy global economy. What's your outlook for the dairy industry? <laughs> you know, I've been scratching my head, Mike, on, on this for uh, a couple weeks now. I mean, you, you think about we built an insurance product, Dairy Revenue Protection, to help folks uh, in the case of a catastrophic event like COVID-19. Uh, we saw low milk prices in, in April and May and then June on the back of, you know, a government program to come buy cheese on the back of uh, recovery and food away from home, we, we saw cheese prices hit $3 a pound. And so that wiped away uh, these, you know, any potential indemnities out of Dairy RP. Uh, but then at the same time, the, the massive increase in the Class 3 price, a lot of folks aren't even getting that because of these negative PPDs. So uh, I've been, you know, scratching my head over where that money actually is. I mean, you have to be a federal order export to figure all that out. But uh, it's going to take some time for these higher Class 3 prices to, to make it to the farmer's milk check because we're going to see uh, processors and co-ops continue to depool as long as the, the economic incentive is there. We changed the fluid milk pricing system in the farm bill so it's no longer the higher of, so it's not going to come to them in higher Class 1 prices. So uh, even though we've seen a recovery in the, in the Class 3 price, it may not ultimately make it to the farmer's, farmer's uh, pocket, and that's, that's a concern. Where are we in your estimation with with packing plants and the ongoing impact of that on agriculture? Well, I think if we go back to, you know, April, uh, you know, you saw headlines, you know, Mike, that said we, we were going to run out of food, that grocery stores were going to be bare for, for quite a while, that there was a real shortage of, of, of meat products. And, and what we actually saw was uh, there were some regional disruptions uh, in the supply chain, not long-lasting disruptions. Uh, and then what we've seen is, is those processing plants, I think, uh, with the, the availability of personal protective equipment and getting workers back in the plants, uh, they they bounced back faster than anybody could have anticipated. I think uh, weekly slaughter numbers on the cattle and hog front are above year-ago levels. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have uh, several hundred thousand uh, head of animals that, that we need to work through uh, that, that weren't processed. So I think there's a, a, a tremendous backlog. Uh, nowhere is that more evident than looking at the lean hog futures price. It continues to be depressed. All right, John, good to talk with you, and uh, we'll talk again soon. A lot of the things to look forward to. How do we uh, come back? What changes might be made in our supply system as we move forward past COVID-19? We'll talk about that next time. Good to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. John Newton, Chief Economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation, joining us here on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, let's discuss the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee's final report. When it comes to dairy, the dairy industry has uh, some mixed feelings on it. Let's talk about it now with Clay Detlefson, Senior Vice President, Environmental and Regulatory Affairs for the National Milk Producers Federation. Clay, thanks for joining us. Let's start with what you like about uh, this final report. Morning, Mike. Thank you for having me on. Uh, what we like is we pretty much held our ground and actually gained slight ground in certain areas. 
Um, we didn't lose anything. So that's always a good thing. What we're disappointed in is we think there's a lot of good research out there on full fat dairy that says it's either uh, not harmful or it may be beneficial in some cases. And they didn't focus enough time on that emerging research, which I think will set it up for the next round. Why do you think they didn't to spend more time or focus more on that new research? Well, you know, in the past they had, you know, mountains of research saying that dairy fat or saturated fats and dairy fat were bad. The sheer volume of research isn't comparable to what's there before. Plus, to a large degree, I think a lot of the, the scientists are kind of stuck in a rut and they haven't they haven't really embraced changing uh, information out there. But the report did reaffirm the uh the the benefits of dairy in our diet right i mean it did to hit those key oh, health yes, health areas uh, on nutrients right yeah throughout the report uh they said very very positive things about having low fat and non-fat dairy in the diet um they identified the uh nu- nutrients of concern and dairy does a fantastic job in delivering on those so now, it's, it's got a lot of positive stuff in it. We remain to be in each of the, uh, the, the eating patterns, so the U.S. healthy, the uh, healthy vegetarian, and the Mediterranean all still have solid recommendations for inclusion of dairy in those diets. Including uh, for birth through 24 months. Yes, that's a new one for us. That's uh, the first time they've ever ruled on that or or issued recommendations on it uh for six to one year six months to one year uh yogurt and cheese are recognized and then one year and up pretty much all dairies uh recommended also interesting about the need for americans overall to have more dairy in their diets absolutely um while about 10% of Americans exceed the recommended amounts, 88% consume too little dairy. A lot of this, of course, is connected with the school lunch program, which right now is, uh, uh, you know, we don't know where that's headed with the schools this fall, whether they're going to reopen or not. We know the impact that's had on on uh, the dairy industry. Uh, but so much of this has to do with those feeding, those types of feeding programs, right? Absolutely. And, you know, we got a little bit lucky when the food box program was started up and other alternative uh, feeding programs to get dairy to where the American consumers needed it. Uh, so if we don't have the schools opening up again or, or they're open up on a much lesser level, uh, we still have to get dairy to our Americans. You know, a lot of people say, well, I don't pay much attention to these dietary guidelines. I eat what I what I like and things like that. I, I don't need somebody to tell me. So what is the impact or the significance of these guidelines? What do they really influence? They really influence your health. If you want to be healthy, you should be following the dietary guidelines. Um, and if you don't, you know, there's dire consequences out there. So it's important that people pay attention to these and and follow them. And dairy's got a wonderful place in the dietary guidelines. 
And those guidelines do have impact on those key programs like the, the feeding programs, whether school lunch or other types of programs, right? Absolutely. And that's why we have to work to get these guidelines right. And I think the, the battle that's getting set up for the future is taking a hard look at multiple le levels of fat and products and especially differentiating dairy fat from other fats and trying to understand you know, how that can all fit together. Because, you know, one of the things that we've learned from schools is if you're not allowing the kids to have whole milk, a lot of times they're not going to consume their milk. They don't care for, for skim, uh, et cetera. So we've got to make sure that the kids get the milk that they need. Yeah, there's been all, all kinds of different uh, layers to this, the whole milk versus uh, skim milk, flavored milk. It's, all of this has become a big a debate, hasn't it? Absolutely, and it's going to continue, but hopefully we will turn the tide. Uh, we're going to start, you know, there's a oral comment period on August 11, which they'll have to do virtually, and then people can file written comments on August 13th or by August 13th, so we're going to be pushing on that. Um, and hopefully we can maybe advance the, the mission a little bit as the Health and Human Services and USDA mull over the recommendations from the Dietary Guidelines Committee. And how things change, uh, there for a while they were telling us uh, to avoid or cut back on whole milk, and now whole milk is back in. And so is butter. Yeah. Butter's doing real well these days. Yeah. So always interesting, but it's a, it's always an ongoing uh, situation and debate and, and, and working on these uh, dietary guidelines. Clay, thanks for the latest uh, from a dairy perspective. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right. Clay Detlefson, he's the Senior Vice President, Environmental and Regulatory Affairs for the National Milk Producers Federation. With that, we will wrap it up for today. Coming up tomorrow, we'll take a look at the new Environmental Policy Act uh, proposal. We'll take a look at that with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. We'll also hear from the Renewable Fuels Association an economic analysis of the impact, the harm COVID-19 has done to the ethanol industry. We'll look at that and more tomorrow right here on AOA. Hope you'll join us. Stay safe, everyone. <music>